Welcome to the Appalachian Baptist Network. We seek to equip, encourage, and engage pastors and church leaders in the Appalachian region. We focus on having conversations on church revitalization in the mountains and beyond. Your hosts are Matthew Jacobs, Brent Snyder, Jacob Gwynn, and Travis Tyler. Hello and welcome back to the Appalachian Baptist Network. I'm your host, Travis, and joining me today is uh, several hosts that you know and love, Jacob, Matthew, Jaron. Thank you guys for being with me today. And I want to start out by quoting that great theologian from the TV show, The Office Creed, who said once, I've been part of many cults. It's more fun to be part of one, but you make more part, more money being in a cult. So let's uh, let's think about this today. Uh, when I was in seminary, I took a class on new religious movements, and the professor said to us in class that if you do a really good job on the Book of Romans, which is one of the hardest commentaries to write because of how you know thick the Greek is and how tough it is to exegete, you might make enough money to make one payment, one mortgage payment on your home. But if you write a religious or sacred text like Ron Hubbard did for Scientology, you'll be set for life. Your grandkids will be set for life. Your great-grandkids will probably be set for life. So there's a lot of money to be made. What is a cult or a new religious movement? How should we think about them? And should we talk about them as pastors? This is our discussion today on the Appalachian Baptist Network. And joining me is Jaron Street, Matthew Jacobs, and Jacob Wynn. So welcome back, guys. Thanks. Good to be back. So let's just start out with a discussion here. What is a cult? I think very basically, go ahead, Jacob. No, go for it, Matthew. You're the expert here, not me. No, no, I I think you've got a lot of different factors when you're looking at what is a cult. Um, You're you're looking at a central figure uh, who is trying to supersede because they have some sort of special revelation or special knowledge. Um, oftentimes there is some sort of, once again, there's a special, special knowledge or, or, or a new revelation that, that has come to light that, uh, that makes their group in particular, their movement unique or different. Uh, oftentimes, you know, they have different mindset in regards to their members, what's called border control. And it's the idea of, of putting things in place to keep, them away from other communities and closer to the group uh, in order to keep them a little bit more secure. There, there's a lot of different things you can look at when it comes to a cult, but you, you hang on that, 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 that figure, that founder, and the idea of that new or special knowledge, I think, is, is pretty key when we talk about new religious movements or cults. And, yeah. and, to, yeah. and to continue what you were saying, Travis, I, I think it's important to teach on. Um, you know, I've, I, I've taken time, you know, oftentimes on a Sunday night, um, I, I use that time as more of a teaching instead of preaching. And so sometimes do Bible studies just verse by verse through books, but I, I I've taken time to just look at different movements, Jehovah's witness, Mormons, um, even the, the Muslim faith and, and different things, because I think it's helpful for our people. One to know their faith, and I think that's the key thing when it comes to cults and new religious mo- movements, is understanding our faith, the Bible, biblical doctrine, but then also being able to clearly point to the differences between what what they may claim and, and what we believe as biblical Christianity. That's an excellent point, and I couldn't agree with you more. 
uh, one of the one of the advantages of teaching on cults and new religious movements, and by the way, those words are almost interchangeable in the Christian faith, a cult or a new religious movement. Um, and a new religious movement would just simply be anything that um, is going to be a deviation from orthodox theology that the church has affirmed, starting with Jesus Christ and the apostles and moving forward. If you have a doctrinal statement that will be deviating from there, uh, then you're also going to have, uh, you know, first century Christians should be able to agree with your doctoral statement, whatever that is, right? That's going to be kind of the parameter that we're going to hold up there. Uh, so, you know, in new religious movements, you have, you have a totally different construction and worldview and doctrine and understanding. So let's just kind of go through some distinctives here of a cult. If I would simply define a cult as a sect of people bound together by devotion to a person, an object, or an ideology. And they do have those strict boundaries that we discussed. Now, in that definition, you can maybe argue that early Christians were a cult, but not as we go through this and talk about this more. So I have a little kind of a, um, I don't know, what do you call this when you have a letter that means something and they all make something and people do it? Alliteration for cults. First one is cults are in conflict with society. In other words, they do not follow cultural norms of their surrounding culture, usually an overall affecting it all together. I think the best example of this may be David Koresh or Jim Jones, right? Uh, Jim Jones and David Koresh, in particular David Koresh, if you're not familiar with him, I would encourage you to look back over. They built a compound. They completely withdrew from the culture right? And they formed their own deal. Jim Jones pulled all his followers out of the United States and took them to South America to start their own compound there and be left alone, and, and to put it in his mind, in his words. So there's a complete withdrawal. Uh, in addition to that, the followers are going to see a withdrawal socially, right? On what levels? Yeah. So, you know, I think of Jehovah's Witness because culturally they, um, you know, they will not serve in the military, right? They, they, they don't believe in, in certain things in regards to blood transfusions and things like that. There, there's a removal of even holidays and birthdays. So there's a removal trying to bring people in and closer to the movement and away from society. And, and Mormonism or Latter-day Saints were, really did this early on, but over time, after they moved to Salt Lake City and eventually uh, early in the 20s and the 30s, they began to change some of their views on this, where many of their people began to serve in the military. They began to be much more open towards societies. And, and that's why oftentimes Mormons are a little bit more accepted in public life as opposed to Jehovah's Witness. Mm-hmm. But I think it's we understand that there is this separation from culture, yeah. Matthew, were you going to add to that? I was going to say a prime example is that looking at Mitt Romney. I mean, if you sit there and look a hundred years ago, would you have had somebody running for president that was a Mormon? Fun fact about Mormons in politics. Um, if you've well, technically just did run for president. Yeah. Uh, he was, was very unsuccessful. Yeah, <laughs> Still seems why. to be struggling with success politically in my opinion. But anyway, um, if you go back in Mormon history, when they moved out to Salt Lake City, it was not part of the United States, if you'll remember that. Like it, they were trying to get out of the United States, which goes along with their history, as Jacob was saying. 
Then when the United States annexed through Manifest Destiny and comes through there and takes Utah and all these other territories, uh, then they had to make a decision, right? And one of the things that people were worried about and Washington was worried about is if the Mormons all picked one political party, it may give that party a majority in power in, in the United States. So you know what the, they told them to do in Salt Lake City? Half of you will be Democrats, half of you will be Republicans. And they told them what they would do there. So they just split it up so they would be a non-effect in, in Washington. Isn't that interesting? So, I, of course, back then it wasn't Republicans and Democrats. It was probably Democrats and Whigs or whatever. But you get the point. So they were, Right. Well, you know, when Utah was just a territory, that's when the LDS held towards um, polygamy. And before they got statehood, um, part of the the – the deal to get statehood and, and that they were, they were going to send the army in to de- de-arm some of the individuals that were leading was, um, was that they had to get rid of polygamy. And so uh, lo and behold, uh, they had a, a vision from the Lord, which was known as declaration number one. And uh, polygamy was banned from LDS. Um, Very is it banned? Is it banned? I mean, really? Yeah, it's fundamental. With, yeah, within the Latter-day Saints, that what we know as kind of Mormons or mainstream Mormons, it, it, it is it is very it's not looked on very highly at all, and you you cannot hold to polygamy and be a part of the church. Now, you've got your other groups, your FLDS, or um, you know other groups, the the Church of the Brethren, and things like that that are Mormons, but they they're fundamental groups and small groups. But that's a that's a side note. Well, it feels like we've learned something from Solomon. I mean, really, anytime, because I think every cult, this polygamy thing stuff comes up. Solomon should have taught us, if anything, the more wives you have, the more heartache you have. We're going to move on to (laughs) unfamiliarity with distinct Christian teachings from the past. One of the things we see in cults is that they are going to move away from Orthodox theology in the areas of teaching symbols and sources, right? They're going to hold other items up as sacred text. Uh, We've spent a lot of time on Mormonism, and we may still come back to them some, but uh, we've seen different others do this as well. David Byrd and the the family, I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but he's another example of a new religious movement where he was receiving direct revelations from the Lord as an alternative source for their uh, religion and, and what they're seeing as revelation. So we would, we would mark anything past the foundation that has been laid in Scripture, right? The Bible tells us what? That the foundation was laid by whom? Christ. Christ and the apostles, right? They, and then we build on that in Hebrews. So there's no need for continual revelation and text. That is an indicator of a cult if they're saying they have continued revelation, right? We don't, we don't have new revelation. We just affirm what has been given. Uh, another thing we see is the L, and that is for a leader, a strong, charismatic leader with a high level of authority who formulates dogs, dogmas, who isolates members from others who do not support their beliefs. They basically knock away their family to where they become the only family that they have. Totalitarianism, complete commitment. The members are expected to become dependent on the group for their psychological, their social, their religious, and their physical needs. Uh, Jim Jones is an example of this. Did you know that Jim Jones, uh, he, he went in and he had a message that appealed 
to the black community who was under suppression at the time that he was a leader and to the elderly who, and I think elderly are oftentimes looking for more community. And he got people to sign over their social security checks to him and to their organization. They put them in a building and he had some of the new members. They, they took care of those elderly people in those buildings, I guess the best they could. Uh, but you know, I don't know how well they did that, but, Oftentimes, there is a strong distinctive here in totalitarianism where there is unnecessary boundaries that are drawn, and those unnecessary boundaries come down to dress, diet, and even names, right? Remember the Hales-Bopp Comet back in the 90s? Whenever they found them after they committed suicide, they were all dressed exactly the same, which is kind of odd and disturbing on another level, right? Mistaking uniformity for unity, right, is what we're seeing happening in this. Um, and then finally, seeks experience. Outward towards uh, powerful subjective experiences, meeting those personal needs. Uh, the group believes that they have exclusive rights to a long tradition of wisdom or practice that has either become corrupted or lost in the mainstream, right? And so they, they can't trust us Baptists. We've been around too long. They can't trust the, the church because in the scriptures, they've been around too long, right? What are some yeah, common yeah. things you'll hear them say as they question scripture? Yeah, and that's that idea of continuing revelation is, you know, that's, that's what's key when we think about, about cults is the revealing of new knowledge, right? So um, these sacred things that were once somehow lost that have been brought back, right? So, um, you know, we've talked a lot about Mormons, but, um, you know, they oftentimes think this idea of there was this great apostasy that happened in the second, third century of the church. And what happened was temple rites and baptism of the dead and uh, eternal covenantal marriage uh, disappeared, which were these, and even polygamy, disappeared and, and were brought back, right, um, through Joseph Smith and, and many others. And, and many cults and new religious movements have something very similar, right? Um, you know, I, I don't know if you remember this, but, um, you know, uh, in Indiana, there was a, a cult not too far from us there, the, the, the Brahmins. And, uh, you know, it was all hidden. We have a jump- couple of them here in Elizabeth. True. Uh, so, you know, it's all hinged on this leader and, and new revelation. And, and oftentimes, um, for instance, that, that particular cult has kind of died out because w- once their leader died, for the most part, they just listen to tapes now. And, and so it, this key idea of continuing to have new special knowledge uh, is, is so key with cults. Yeah, and of course, you're referencing William M. Branham. He was around from 1909 to 1965. For those of you who may not be familiar with them, they're a smaller cult than some of the other ones we've mentioned here. Brother Branham is buried in southern Indiana, not too far from where I used to live. Ironically, Brother Branham died in a car accident, which I'm not sure why, if you have a direct revelation from God, you wouldn't see a car wreck coming. But, you know, that's maybe another discussion for another day. And uh, that's what they do. They come together, and you'll see the one here in town. They'll have license plates from Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky. They will come down to listen to these recordings of this guy. And everything that they need, like, 
they have like an insurance guy that goes to that church. Their hairdressers go to that church. And, you know, I, I know there's some people in my church that go to, that work with some people that go to that church. And it's, it's, you know, they do mortgages at that church. They actually loan money at that church for people to build their homes. They're all airtime and, and all that. So yes, uh, very, very good point there on the, the Branhamites being another example of a cult or new religious movement. What's interesting to me is how our, our nation, the United States, in my opinion, is a breeding ground for new religious movements. Why is that? I, I think, and, and I, re, I remember studying this, and uh, my, my mentor, Travis uh, Kearns, could, could speak more towards this, but but you'll notice there's there's way more cults and new religious movements starting in the U.S. than many other countries, and and I think a lot of that has to do is when it comes to freedom and the idea of individualism, and so because uh, you know our country is is founded on a, on a new freedom and a religious freedom, and there's a sense of individualism there that it has created almost this unique ability that uh, that people can start these new movements. So even Joseph Smith, um, his movement started in the midst of the, the Second Great Awakening um, or in the, in the wake of it. And so he was from New York and from that region. And it was an area called the, the burned over area because he had different um, different ministers from different denominations that came and preached in revivals. And, and here he is just kind of came up in the midst of that. And, I, and so I think part of because we have this freedom of religion, I, I think it has created this ability um, for things like this to, to spawn up uh, more so than other, other countries or nations. I think that, and then you couple that with the fact that America is a melting pot of a lot of people from a lot of places, right? We've talked about this on Appalachia, uh, Appalachian Baptist Network. Even here in Appalachia, we have people from Africa. We have people from uh, Britain. We have people from Germany and some of their folklores and their religious traditions followed them into this new country and have no doubt been integrated to form new religious movements, which by the way, if you've never heard that term before, let me be very clear. A new religious movement is anything that is formed in the past 150 to 175 years. We would classify as a new religious movement and almost everyone we've talked about on here, you know, cults is kind of a wider, you know, spectrum because cults Cults can have existed for a long time, but new religious movements only go back about almost 200 years. And so, you know, the nation that we live in, uh, we've seen a lot of them, and they're going to have pieces of Judeo-Christianism. A lot of them we see popping up in the 1840s and forward into the 1960s, right? Uh, so new religious movements are there. They, they oftentimes have a shaman who is the one who communicates with the God or gods uh, or the spirit world and will do so by uh, different eclectic means. Uh, you know, one, one that we were discussing before we recorded this was what Joseph Smith would do. So you want to elaborate on that for us? Yeah. So when, when we think about the way that Joseph Smith translated uh, the book of Mormon and uh, you know, most people assume the golden tablets, he just looked at the tablets, which, uh, was apparently written in Reformed uh, Egyptian, which doesn't exist. But um, most people just assume, and even the, the LDS have this image oftentimes of the tablets and Joseph sitting there near them. But that wasn't the process that he went through of just looking at the page and just translating word for word. Uh, it was that he had these seer stones 
um, and he would put these seer stones in these special goggles and he would put his head in the midst of a, a top hat and get rid of all the light. And as he did this, these seer stones um, in the midst of all this darkness would allow um, a different word to pop up and he would respond and say that word out loud and an individual on the other side uh, of the uh, the room which had to have a, a white blanket or sheet across the way would uh, write it down and they would respond and that's how he went through this whole process um, you know I think of Charles Russell with uh, Jehovah's Witness um, and the, the New World Translation it was um, he, he had no background in Greek or, or Hebrew and in fact he most people don't realize this, but he was on the, the stand because he was being sued for, uh, for um, libel and, uh, and, and several other things. And, and he had to come out and say he had no theological training whatsoever, but yet he amazingly translated uh, God's word in a new, unique way that fit his revelation. And so there's this idea of people having this new revelation and, and this leader with these unusual practices that bring it to light. There is also a reaction in these theologies against orthodox theology. That is the fundamental theology we all believe. They are going to be in direct conflict with what we would classify as first tier, if we were to triage theology, the most important first tier doctrines. Doctrines like the Trinity. Have you noticed in new religious movements that the Trinity goes almost first. Yeah, one, one of the things you're going to see in a lot of these movements is just an assault on God's character, right? And so, for instance, Mormonism, you know, God was once a man who became God and then became a man as Christ, and, and the Holy Spirit is not God as, at, at all, Um you know, the same thing with Jehovah's Witness. They they believe that Jesus was an angel who was more godly and, and kind of God-approved, right? But he was not God. And so there, there's always, and I think this is key, um, a lot of these movements, there is always a devalue of Christ's divinity. There, there's a focus on his humanity, but there is an assault on his divinity as the Son of God equal um, to the Father. I would say a quick litmus test to go right along with what you're saying would be, does the teachings of this church or this individual bring more glory to God and make him bigger, or does it make him smaller and make man bigger? And if you're going to say it makes man bigger and God smaller, that is an indicator of a cult or and or especially a new religious movement. All right. What, uh, what other, what other things? Yeah. I'll say one, one unique thing here about Mormonism, Mormonism initially starting out, um, was not anti-biblical. Uh, most people don't realize that, but initially, uh, starting out there, there were, they had a lot more biblical views and, and held to God's word. But once again, we get at this leader over time as, as Joseph had new revelation, and, and new words apparently from God is it went and became heretical. And that's what, what I think is key is oftentimes that beginning message may have some sort of Christian view or, or maybe Orthodox, but there's always a slow erosion away from Orthodox Christianity. 
in addition to this, it inevitably, what I have noticed, will affect the sexual practices of the group as well. Instead of holding to a biblical view of sex and sexuality, it will quickly dwindle in one of two directions. It will either become polygamous and kind of a sexual free-for-all, as we saw in David Byrd and the family, where he would solicit young women to dance with their shirts off and no top on because he wanted them to bring glory to God in their nudity, right? There's a perversion here in his theology, which equates to a sexual perversion in practice. And it will also equate in the, in the other direction, right? In the, um, the Hale-Bach comment, we saw a group of people who castrated themselves, mutilated their bodies, and it was because their theology was so off that it ended up costing them uh, in mutilation, and they were abstaining from any kind of sexual practice, even though they were free to marry and engage biblically, right? Isn't that funny how that always correlates together? Yeah, there is a, I'm not sure what it is. You know, I think of oftentimes, you look at the the churches in, in Revelation, Jesus addresses several of them. Uh, Pergamum and and where they adopt you know sexual immorality and and false teaching as a practice and a lot of a lot of cult and new religious movements there is some sort of sexual immorality um, that circles around the leader I mean David Koresh right um, other members who were married could not engage um, in, in, in sexual practice. But he could with other members' wives, right? The, the same thing you think of Joseph Smith, right? The, within there, there was very similar. He ended up marrying many of the original members' wives. Um, you, you can think of, uh, you know, so, so many cults are, are right along this same practice where there is that sexual immorality that, that comes into play. Or you think of the groups like, um, what is it, the Shakers, Shaker Quakers, they died out. Yeah because they were instructed to have no sex, even within the bounds of marriage, no sex, no children, you know, they couldn't do anything. They're not even around anymore. I think there's a whole little compound or town in Kentucky, isn't there? Isn't it like, I, I think there's a small group in Kentucky. I, I don't know how they continue because um, once again, that was part of their, there was a absolute abstaining even within marriage. Um, so I don't know how you continue to prevent but they do. You recruit people that have already had kids and they recruit people that have had kids and that's how that continues. Sounds like you're working on a new sacred text over there. So I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> All right. Uh, the, uh, the other thing that I wanted to draw and point out here too, with new religious movement, uh, the, experience in their services and what I would say is perhaps a power that their leaders may have. Of course, their leaders always, and we've already talked about this, they're Gnostic. So they're saying they have some knowledge, but as I've read a biography, for example, on Joseph Smith, uh, there are some who record that he does different kind of signs and wonders, for example, healing people. Now, I don't know if that actually happened or not, but some people reported that it did. And there are, Jesus himself told us that there will be false prophets who will arise. And what did he say they would be able to do? 
they would be able to do what? Signs and wonders. So can these religious leaders, is there a power or is there a um, spirit, a supernatural component to them? Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a demonic spirit. You know, I think of, obviously, once again, you know, I know I keep hitting on LDS and, and Mormons and Joseph Smith, but that's just area of study for myself. But, you know, he had the various visions from angels, right? And Jesus reminds, or Paul reminds us, sorry, in Galatians, um, not to trust even an angel that comes preaching a gospel different than the one that you have heard. And and so I, I believe, yeah, he, he was visited by some sort of demonic presence that that began to lead him astray because even in some of the things that he he did right um there were signs and wonders recorded we don't know the validity of them but but i believe that there was probably some sort of demonic presence that allowed him to do that and you know i think of you think of in the book of acts Acts 16 right the early church of philippi and uh, there's a, a young girl a young woman who has a spirit of divination right uh, the ability to tell the future or to see into the future. And she was demonic possessed before Paul cast a demon out of her and she came to know the Lord. And so I, I think some of these leaders do have some sort of demonic um, empowerment that allows them to do some feeble signs of wonders, right? I would agree. I would totally agree. Well, okay, we're we're about out of time here. You know, Revelation even carries that forward to when the false prophet comes alongside with the Antichrist. One of the ways that the Bible says then uh, that many will be deceived will be through the powers, the signs, and the wonders that he will be allowed to work. And, of course, so much of that ties into uh, the satanic influence and demonic presence that's going to go along with all of that. One final question here, brothers. What do new religious movements look like? now in 2020? Are they the same as they were? We've talked about a lot of them from the 1860s up through the 1960s or even older. Do they look the same now as they did then? Yeah, so I I think you have these formalized religious movements that we know now. I I think now in, in our recent day, I think you don't necessarily see as much a formalized movement, but I think you see a spiritual buffet of sorts, right? Mm. And so they see a particular church um, that focuses heavily on healing or miracles and uh, has gone away from orthodox views of Christianity, or you may see another movement or another um, church where, uh, there's kind of they they bring in maybe some Eastern religious practices uh, within and try to kind of mix that it within Christianity. And so I so what I think you see is a spiritual buffet, and instead of a, a large movement, right? Um, it's in pockets within, unfortunately, some some churches that have gone astray and had fallen into false teaching. I agree. Go ahead, Jerry. I think you know. One of the ways it, it appears perhaps a little different now than, you know, one of the main ones you've been talking about so far on this episode from 18s and early 1900s is the extended access that so many people have to uh, 
a great variety of religions that have existed for a very long time and are now trying to take uh, certain traditions or practices from there, but put a new age thought kind of spin on there. And so they keep the, they try to bring the, the practices from Eastern religion, put it under a new thought process from Western philosophy. Uh, I guess what many call the new age movement and, uh, can join all of that together. And I guess in some ways that's a little bit newer of an aspect uh, to it than, than some of these mainstream ones that's been around now eight since 1800s and early 1900s. I'll hit on one more thing here. I, I think, you know, Mormonism and Jehovah's witness have lost ground within the United States, but they have grown in areas um, like South America or areas of Africa. And I, I think to some degree, we talk about 2020 and, and what these movements look like 2020. I, I think to some degree, the information age and the internet, um, somebody, you know, I, I get a knock on the door and some Jehovah's Witness comes on my door and I've never heard of it. And then I just Google Jehovah's Witness or uh, Charles Russell or anything else related. And I start reading and I learn, wait a minute, this, this sounds kind of, kind of off. And oftentimes those movements are, are seeing their major growth in third world countries and, and some degree are preying on um, less education and poverty and, and people that might not have access to be able to, to study and have information. You know, I think that the new religious movements in America, in our context, what we're seeing is um, I remember reading about President Barack Obama's spiritual advisor. I don't know if you guys read an article about this guy. But uh, he would draw on like five major religions and would prepare the president these what daily spiritual moments where he would be quoting Muslims and he would be we didn't even touch on Muslims in this thing. And that would be another group that would fall under the cults category. Um, I didn't realize this, but, you know, in talking to my my good friend uh, Mubasher, he told me that um, Muhammad saw something in the cave saw some kind of a figure in the cave, it made him sick, physically ill, being in the presence of it. Uh, yeah, you're, you're right. A lot of people don't think of Muslims, but they're, it's, it's built on special revelation and a kind of a new unveiled teaching, which is kind of that core thought of, of cults. He had to go back to this being in the cave to get that revelation for their, for their Quran. And, um, you know, I, I think that he kind of embodies that uh, with his religious advisor. Now, I don't know about President Trump and who his religious advisor are. I think he would look to some of the prosperity gospel preachers, I think, unfortunately, uh, more so than he would. And, you know, to be quite honest, I'm not sure the last time we've had a Christian in office as president. And whenever they do these things, they're normalizing new religious movements, which was why I really struggled in the presidential election where we had a Mormon who was one of the final candidates as I struggled to vote and normalize in the American mind, this new religious movement that is false. So anyway, uh, all right, we're going to have to land the plane here. Any closing thoughts before we go? I think it's interesting. One of the things you said there in your acrostic using the, the word cults uh, talked about the subjective experiences and, and how so many are looking for, those moments of of being overwhelmed with feelings or a specific event and uh you know even how that is 
pervading in many ways and, and pushing even within prosperity gospel teaching a lot of things that are, are going on in churches across America and wanting to base so much on a subjective experience and feelings and, and one specific uh, thing uh, rather than our experience and rather than objective truth and absolute truth, I guess, objective reality. So uh, just interesting how even that side of it we see can creep close to home sometimes. One other thing I failed to mention, too, for cults in America, uh, the amount of people infatuated with conspiracy theories has just caught my attention lately. And the the QAnon phenomena that we're seeing with the alt-right, some of these different things that are happening, do they align almost 100% with a new religious movement and a cult and their practices? And we need to be discerning and careful about jumping on board with a uh, new religious move or any kind of a uh, new religious movement or in the disguised as a conspiracy theory. So, all right. Thank you all for joining us. Were you going to say one more thing there? No, I I think it's helpful to be familiar with some of these groups. I, I would encourage any believer listening, any pastor, it's helpful to study and have just kind of an overview of some of these different cults and, and movements. But I still think the the key thing for any believer, uh, any pastor is yeah, having a broad idea of what some of these, these groups believe. But the key thing is, is knowing God's word, knowing biblical Orthodox Christianity, because even if you don't know a particular movement and what they believe about this, you can easily, you can easily spot a forgery just by knowing God's word and knowing biblical truth. That's how they spot them uh, in the U.S. Mint, even though we're moving towards a cashless society. They make those guys study the real deal, $100 bill, and then they can then they can spot a fake. Thank you for joining us, and join us again next time. We're going to have another one more, maybe two in this series as we move forward. You have been listening to the Appalachian Baptist Network. Thanks for joining us. If you have a question or comment for our host, please send an email to Network at gmail.com or send us a voice message on our Anchor website page at anchor.fm slash Appalachian dash Baptist dash network. Join us again next Monday.